Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. All right. So it is um, 12 p.m. Eastern, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. We are going to go ahead and get started with our FAMDA Journal Club. Um, I am Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda, your host for today. I'm also going to be your presenter, and hopefully everyone can see my screen. Um, I want to talk today about um, long COVID. And I know we, in this form, we talked about this a couple of times. I think we had a formal presentation maybe a year ago with myself and Dr. Pamela Scarborough, where we were first discussing long haulers and and really sort of enlightening everybody. Um, We also presented, uh, she and I together, at um, our annual Best Care Practices um, Conference and most recently at the Fadana um, Conference. I think, um, you know, if you haven't heard me talk about this, uh, then um, um, <laughs> you know that you, you've been spared probably my obsession around this. And uh, much in the way of the advertisement, it has been much of a rabbit hole. We're just trying to find information around what's happening and how this impacts um, our uh, um patience and our continuum and what we need to be doing about it, you know, that has taken up a lot of time and a lot of energy, but I I do think that it's something that we really need to wrap our heads around. And with that, I want to start with a case. So there's a 78-year-old woman who was admitted to a SNF for post-acute care. She has been in the facility for about two weeks, and um, it was reported that she's not progressing um, with therapy, um, not um, doing well with uh, physical or occupational therapy. Her family was informed of the potential next steps, which were that um, if the patient was to remain at the facility, she would have to be a long-term care resident. Um, They could coordinate discharge to home with um, in-home care, um, which, you know, I I don't often know if our family members understand what that means, um, but it was home with home health, basically. And the daughter was um, very upset. She wanted her mother transferred to the acute inpatient rehabilitation um, facility, which I have abbreviated as an heir, because the SNF is not treating her mother, um, and she's upset that this level of care was initially denied. So the background, the that person, um, the, the daughter, had requested an heir in the hospital, but um, upon assessment, it was determined that the the patient couldn't tolerate that level of um, rehabilitation. So we get this woman, and, you, and the question is, okay, what's going on? Um, what's happening? She has a history of osteoarthritis and hypertension. Um, her um, current um, recent history includes a COVID diagnosis five months ago. Um, since then, she's had muscle weakness and falls in the past two months, which led her to be um, hospitalized. Her daughter states that she was very active before. She would do gardening, walk around the neighborhood, visit with her friends, watch her grandkids, and um, she needs her mother to to get back to that level of functioning. And so she's, as I said before, very upset because she felt that the sniff was not doing anything. When we looked into the case a little bit um, deeper, it was documented that the patient has had um, a, a complaint of feeling very exhausted um, for the past three months, that she does have shortness of breath when attempting any activity. And her last hospitalization, um, you know, she was treated for a UTI despite, despite having negative uricultures. And then upon review of her chart, um, it was noted that she had post-COVID condition. 
which was documented by both the physical and occupational therapists who did the assessment. And the question is what's going on? You know, what, what is this and what, what is this um, case? So I will say that I feel like um, I've heard this case now maybe a hundred or even a thousand times um, um, from where I sit is something that I see a lot. And the we'll, we'll hit upon this a little bit later as we review some more cases, but just remember that the only documentation about post-COVID was um, by the physical and the occupational therapist. And that was after reviewing a hefty amount of notes. So, you know, we've defined this before, but just so that everyone is aware, post-acute sequelae of COVID is what um, the formal name for this condition that we've um, come to see called um, long COVID. <clears throat> And when we look at that, you know, that has been recognized and it really was um, socialized um, back in um, 2020 in the summer of 2020 when people were trying to understand, well, why do I have um, some persistent um, symptoms? Why after three months am I still spiking the temperature, um, feeling nauseous, having um, trouble um, tasting or smelling at times? And long COVID became the term, uh, umbrella term that used that we used to describe all of the physical and mental health consequences of um, COVID that was lasting um, for for more than uh, 12 weeks. The challenge, though. Um, has been to really understand why we're seeing this and um, to understand the physiology. I will say that the World Health Organization did put a definition around post-acute sequelae of COVID that included a, a history of a probable or confirmed COVID-19 infection, symptoms for three months from the onset of COVID, that are lasting for at least two months and that cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. Now, when I've had this conversation with others, the, the question always comes up, well, um, our population has multiple comorbidities and we could probably explain away all of this with um, in association with some other conditions. So that is that is something to consider. And I just want us to, to um, broaden our differential diagnosis and think about, could this be post-acute sequelae of COVID? What we do know is that when we're looking at uh, active COVID infection, there could be, um, there, there are times people who go through what we call the cytokine storm, which is that acute hyperinflammatory response. Um, we, we know that this is a, a critical and crucial um, period, and it has a multi-organ um, uh, dysfunction where we're seeing uh, and we've seen uh, multi-systems be impacted. So from um, the respiratory um, failure that we see with the lungs, kidney failure, GI symptoms, um, um, the, the headaches and, and impaired um, consciousness that we see um, um, neurologically, every system has been impacted. So we're trying to figure out how does that then translate to being a, um, a true pathophysiology? Like what is the pathophys that is causing this, these um, post-acute sequelae of, of, of COVID symptoms? One um, theory is that uh, there is a potential immunopathological mechanism that's underlying this issue. So we're seeing that um, maybe the immune system is exhausted, maybe there's hidden viral reservoirs or a viral induced autoimmunity. And a lot of this, you know, this um, study was, um, came out in 2021, but is really the basis of a lot of the studies that um, um, we're seeing now in the design where we're really trying to understand, okay, what are the underlying issues? And taking it from, do we see a, a imbalance in the neurohormonal um, system? Is there um, an imbalance in the immune metabolism? You know, so is it altered micro, um, what, what are we seeing? So when we're looking at that, another study that sort of had um, great longevity is the, the ideal of this impact across um, the different populations. And, and in thinking about this is maybe caused by 
an immune pathological response, what happens when we think of the severity of illness? So for those individuals who may have more risk factors, are they uh, more likely to have those lingering symptoms? Um, is it um, also impacted by the fact that you had a severe course with the disease. And so this is also one of those um, frameworks where we're uh, seeing um, a lot of the studies be based off of where we're thinking that there is some abnormal abnormalities persisting in the immune response possibly hidden viral reservoirs, um, an imbalance in the neurohormonal system, the renal angiotensin system, and um, prolonged chronic inflam inflammation. So a lot of this is the basis of what we're, what we're the studies that we're going to look at and um, some of the, the questions that sort of linger in the back of our mind when we think about, well, is this um, possibly a long COVID situation? First, I want to hit about prevalence and recognition. So the question that I get asked when, whenever we're presenting is, are we seeing this in our care setting? How do we know that this is um, something that we're seeing? Um, how, how do we distinguish this from anything else? Um, and I want to start with looking at um, a dashboard that was created by um, our colleagues in the, in the physical medicine and rehabilitation um, space, where they really um, took um, one of the earlier studies from JAMA, where they looked at the symptoms that persist um, in the six months following COVID and the fact that uh, up to 70% of people may experience the symptom and 30% um, may still have, um, may actually have post-acute sequelae of COVID um, in fitting in that definition that the World Health Organization has. So in doing that, and, and if we run it by 30% and look at all states, there is probably over 24 million um, cases of post-acute sequelae um, just throughout um, the country. When we break that down, because on this dashboard, you could even look down to um, your current state level. Um, in the state of Florida, we probably have 1.7 um, million plus cases um, if, if we do that same formula. So it's really interesting when you're thinking about how often and how common this may be from, from the fact that we still yet do not have good guidance on it, but we're probably seeing this in an everyday practice type of situation. When we think about the symptoms of um, post-acute sequelae of COVID, remember that just as we, um, as we talked about before with, with the considerations of the pathophys and the cytokine storm that we see with an acute affection um, in the critical cases where multi-organ systems can be impacted. What we're seeing with post-acute sequelae of um, COVID is that multi-organ systems can be impacted. So you may have some people who complain about um, chronic headaches, um, persistent cough, um, shortness of breath with any activity, uh, you know, there is some new guidance from um, the American Academy of Cardiology where they're really looking at um, the, the cardiology um, symptoms of long COVID and, and myocarditis and uh, um, remodeling of um, the cardiac muscle to, to figure out and understand is this was causing these long-term symptoms. Other complications um, um, to the point I made earlier with partnering with Pamela Scarborough, we talked a lot about uh, COVID um, skin and things that we're, we were seeing following a COVID infection, such as um, persistence of rash or, or um, worsening of conditions like um, psoriasis and eczema, uh, hair loss, and as well as um, um, worsening of wounds or development of wounds that are not responding to the treatment as, as we would have anticipated. There's also in our population from just looking around and talking to individuals and, and reviewing cases, um, we do see often um, reported a loss of appetite in some type of um, abdominal um, issues such as either chronic nausea or chronic um, um, vomiting, gastroparesis. Recently, I've, I've read a couple of studies where we're seeing that in um, some of the younger patients. I've not seen studies 
or anything indicating that um, we're seeing it in the older population, but it may be an issue at a source of, uh, of the reason why we're seeing people uh, not eat. So in thinking about just all of those symptoms, you know, and looking at this and appreciating the fact that this, our patients may be experiencing one or more of these um, symptoms um, three, um, three to six months following um, their infection. One study revealed that um, some people are having this uh, as many as 12 months following the infection. And in some cases that are being reviewed, um, um, the NIH um, study that's currently going on, they're following this out even longer um, than that, um, than those um, 12 months. So we don't know yet about the persistence of those symptoms, how long it lasts. And when looking at um, some of those long-term effects, um, I was reviewing this study and it really showed an appreciation of how many um, areas could be um, Im impacted. And I know this is probably very hard to read and I'm gonna make sure you guys get this article. But the point of it is to really think about some of the things that we do see as far as laboratory um, changes. The, we may see um, a persistence um, of, um, of anemia, elevated um, white blood cell count and neutrophil count. Um, there may be um, chronic lung changes that are occurring. And, um, you know, I happen to think about those patients who are now on their third course of a recurrent of antibiotics for what we think is a recurrent pneumonia when they now have pulmonary fibrosis and some of those changes are um, really um, chronic. We are seeing changes with uh, um, renal function, which I think was noted probably um, early in, in, um, in the pandemic. But even for people who had a mild case of COVID, sometimes we were seeing those elevated BUNs and creatinines. And so this um, study from um, Mayo really looked at how all of these different, um, different immune-mediated uh, processes are being impacted and what we're seeing when we're um, drawing blood work and, why, and just why we may be seeing it. So in thinking of all of that, the question that I want to really focus in on, and um, um, my priority is to really try to understand, is this long COVID when we're looking at these cases? And I've asked um, for a few cases to be sent my way, and I think anyone and everyone who um, did that, I think after reviewing some of these things, um, probably need even more cases to really review and understand what's going on. So the first case is a 94-year-old female long-term care resident who has a history of frailty and dementia. The dementia wasn't specified, um, but um, the, the patient has had multiple hospitalizations since her COVID diagnosis in August of 2021. Um, she now has a persistent cough, worsening um, dysphagia, now with a PEG tube um, being placed, progressively worse muscle weakness, She's been treated twice for pneumonia in the past six months and has persisted abnormalities on her blood work. Those include leukocytosis, anemia, elevated BUN, and creatinine. And the question is, is this um, long COVID? And, you know, feel free to take yourself off of mute. Um, feel free to put something in the chat so that I'm not just talking to myself. Um, I will give you a little bit more background um, as I say to her, white blood cell count and neutrophil counts remain elevated. She has anemia. Um, at baseline, she's hypotensive with a systolic in the low hundreds. Um, denies any pain or shortness of breath or rest, but with um, any exertion, um, she does become short of breath. Uh, the, the question and the reason why we thought that this was um, a post-COVID um, situation was because there was there was a a true when we're looking at it it was a um, it wasn't as progressive as a decline that we would normally anticipate in a 94 year old female um, it was a, a true change in the way um, she was going I believe what we noted from her um, her positive COVID diagnosis she didn't have a I guess a severe um, course. She wasn't intubated. Um, uh, 
she was able to come out of the hospital. Um, but since then, uh, I believe her first hospitalization being August 11th, she was hospitalized again in December, again in April. And um, every time, you know, as we would anticipate that that was there was more declines in her function. Um, and looking at it, again, the question became, is this post, is this um, possibly um, a post-acute sequelae of COVID? I was leaning towards, yes, I would love to have anybody else who wanted to debate, but um, I was leaning towards, yes, with this um, situation because we did see such a dramatic change in her baseline. I don't know. If no one um, is willing to come off mute, I'm gonna go to the next case. And this case is a 63-year-old female, long-term care resident. She has a history of um, being HIV positive um, and has a history of frailty. She's been admitted several times to the hospital since her COVID diagnosis over six months ago. She's now with significant functional decline, worsening renal function, um, her um, the write-up, she's been refusing to eat, been very apathetic, as, and um, has on her um, laboratory um, studies, she does have anemia. Uh, this caregiver did approach the family, um, having extensive um, advanced care planning discussions. The family does not want to consider hospice um, care, but um, she is now with the diagnosis of adult failure to, th to thrive. So. I believe for her, she's been hospitalized um, multiple times within the same month and um, now multiple times in, in the last three months, um, multiple times um, hospital, hospitalized. Her last hemoglobin um, was 7.2 in the ER. There was concerns of um, a GI bleed uh, and her condition just continued to worse, worsen. White blood count remained elevated. The UN and creatinine were 33 and 1.9 respectively. And um, she was again treated for a potential pneumonia with um, um, rocephin. And the question here, um, I think more details that came in was that she also had a weight loss of seven pounds. I think um, this case is one in which we're seeing the 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 worsening muscle um, weakness, the functional decline, um, the apathy, which uh, I thought was really interesting because the CDC um, back, I believe, mid-year um, in 2021, added depression and apathy to um, its, its list of symptoms for long COVID. Um, and so I think that um, it is interesting to see that here where the person just sort of uh, is not interested in doing certain uh, activities. That refusal to eat is something that we've seen. And I don't know if the source of that was uh, um, in relation to the GI bleed. It's hard to figure out which comes first when reading a case, but uh, it is interesting. So I was leaning towards a yes to this as well, because as with the other case, there was a, a change where it was a significant um, in, um, the caregiver described dramatic change where that person was no longer at their baseline. And um, we anticipate that people will get, um, um, will have a change when they're in the hospital. I think we're, we're all very familiar with that. But I wonder if this is uh, something that we're seeing because of this issue. Um, I did have a comment um, where the question is, yeah, there like is this um, more of a a conspiracy? Like, is this more of a um, a theory that we have that may not be in association with that? And I honestly don't know. I think uh, that is interesting because we do we did see um, changes with uh, after other um, viral infections, but we don't have enough um, guidance and enough studies showing if there's something that uh, connects all of these cases that we're seeing. I don't know, someone took themselves off on mute and I don't know if they have a comment. Hi, it's, uh, it's Carrie Crandall. And uh, I, I have a comment in both regarding the, these two uh, presentations. What I have found is that I, I do think, and also uh, being a 
COVID patient, a post-COVID and a long-term COVID patient, I, I, I'm not sure about defining something as long-term COVID versus defining it as a, um, a, a sequela of events that occurs directly related to the COVID, which is what I think it is because it's such an inflammatory process. And I think that's what we're seeing and, and being validated more and more, you know, a, a, a heart problem, tachycardia, dyspnea, you know, uh, tingling of your fingertips, GI issues, hair loss. These things are, are happening because the COVID is, a, is basically getting into the uh, vasculature, the cell walls, and just going everywhere. And I think, especially as we know with aging, that uh, aging and chronic disease, all you have to do is have one event going into the hospital. And that's when that person returns to their uh, prior living situation, that they're not gonna be the same, um, especially when they have so many underlying issues. And I think what happens, you know, and like myself, I have both Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr both years ago, 30, 40 years ago, that I never even thought for a minute might have been paying, played any factor in getting COVID or getting all of these long-term effects. But it has. You know, those were factors that caused this, that, that have persisted and made all of my symptoms worse. So, um, but I just, I, that, I think that's the point I wanted to make was that I think these are definitely all wouldn't have occurred if that individual had COVID, be it a severe case requiring hospitalization and ICU, whether they're intubated or not, or an almost mild case. Yeah. It, it supports both. Thank yeah, you. And, and no, I, I thank you for that, Carrie. And I think that's the, the, the reason why we want to see even more, get more information, see more cases to understand what, what could be happening. I will say um, this. I think um, the reason why the, the term long COVID was the term that was popularized by patients on um, social media. The formal term that we're comfortable using is the post-acute sequelae of COVID. And the reason why is because some of this may be complications of actually having the infection and other of this is long, uh, are symptoms um, that may be persisted. So it is, you know, trying to capture that um, the umbrella um, the, the whole umbrella, like everything under the umbrella. So that is why um, the term was um, revamped. I do, I do agree with you. It is really difficult when you think that our people who are coming, going out of the nursing home or going into the hospital are probably, you know, we do know that they're going to come back a, a bit debilitated and different than what they had. So it is, it is like, well, maybe this is all of the above kind of situation um, with some of these uh, cases. Let me go to the next one because I thought this was interesting. This was an outpatient case. And this was um, a 78-year-old male who had a COVID infection six months ago. He refused vaccination. He was treated with monoclonal antibodies in the first 72 hours, but prior to that had refused to be vaccinated. Um, he has a history of being status adrenal transplant, history of spinal stenosis. And prior to COVID at baseline, he walked one to two miles daily. Um, currently, he has exertional dyspnea with, exor with exercise intolerance, muscle weakness, and um, um, severe low back pain. He's now receiving in-home physical therapy with incremental improvement. Um, the case goes on to, to state that he has also complaints of abdominal discomfort um, with um, uh, nausea at times, bloating at times. Um, he also has um, a complaint of um, the, the chronic low back pain, which he's never had before, despite being diagnosed with spinal stenosis um, that was um, 
a diagnosis made as he was being worked up for a renal transplant. And the question, again, is this potentially um, part of that post-acute sequelae of COVID? Is this long COVID? Um, and I, I was leaning towards a, a yes to this one because it was a dramatic change. Uh, per the, the write-up, the, the person can no longer tolerate going just out to, the, um, to his mailbox to get his mail. And this was an individual who apparently um, walked around the neighborhood twice every day. We had another case um, of a 62-year-old female um, resident who has diabetes, history of strokes, um, chronic kidney disease, morbid obesity, hypertension, heart failure, COPD, and rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, she lives in the nursing home, was treated on the COVID unit in the facility until um, she went into acute respiratory failure. Upon um, discharge back to the facility, she continues to have shortness of breath, worsening renal function and muscle weakness. As she's been um, hospitalized multiple times in the, the months following her COVID diagnosis, this um, person and following up with the person who provided this case, um, this um, person was transitioned to hospice um, in, the, in the months following uh, this. So this is an interesting one because she, um, she, she did have some significant findings upon discharge back to the facility that lingered and she kept bouncing back and forth to the hospital before um, everyone was in agreement to transition her to hospice. Another case, 81-year-old um, female resident, a long-term care resident who has um, multiple comorbidities, at baseline, mild cognitive impairments, normal oral intake, was diagnosed with COVID um, with mild symptoms, ha did not have a fever um, or chest pain, but a month later had significant mental and functional decline, worsening renal function, poor oral intake, and that then persisted um, months after that when we checked in on this case. And um, that resident did end up being transitioned to hospice as well. And then I have one last case. And then if we have time, maybe we get some more individuals to weigh in as well. A 71-year-old male who's a homebound patient, which is interesting. He has, um, he's morbidly obese, has COPD, chronic respiratory failure on oxygen, heart failure, sleep apnea, bilateral lower extremity lymphedema with wounds. He's, he was fully vaccinated through the home vaccine program. And um, I don't know if we are all aware, but in the beginning of um, once we had vaccinations in the state of Florida, um, early in that um, process, there was a way to get people vaccinated in their homes. Um, so um, the Department of Health would, uh, you would, you would submit a request that the Department of Health would come out to the home and um, do the vaccinations. He wasn't boosted though, because um, uh, and it's kind of unclear, but at that time they were not doing as many and it was hard, even though um, the daughter didn't make the same request. He was never diagnosed with COVID. So this is a little interesting. Had several rapid tests that were negative during the, during the Omicron wave, despite his entire family testing positive. So the daughter, the grandson who he lives with, um, his um, aide, all tested positive for um, COVID. And at that time, um, they couldn't do the PCR um, testing because there weren't enough um, tests being sent out. So they couldn't get those tested. He cannot leave the home. Three months later, um, this patient had muscle weakness, sacral wound development, bilateral lower extremity wounds were getting worse, um, severe diarrhea requiring hospitalization for dehydration. Um, after he was treated in the hospital, he was um, discharged at home and uh, within 12 hours had another fall, which required eight paramedics to um, lift him up. So it is interesting this this person had, we, we don't have any record uh, of uh, COVID, but potentially this person is having, is seemingly having, um, fitting into that, that post-COVID type of diagnosis. And what makes, I think, this case even more um, fascinating for me is that uh, 
the that was during the time with that Omicron wave where a lot of the people were reporting that they were having negative rapids and then the PCR would come back positive. Um, there is a question about younger populations, and I'm, um, I'm glad you asked that, uh, Jerry. Most of the studies, which is probably one of the reasons why I'm always on the soapbox, most of the, the studies that have been done around this and most of the energy has been directed to the active population. Um, so uh, those young adults, uh, 18 and then going up to um, age 64, the active people who are still um, in employment. Um, to the exclusion of, uh, a bit of um, our population, as well as the pediatric population. Of late, there's been a lot of energy now being turned towards um, pediatrics because of um, the persistence and uh, the, the mental health um, challenges that we're seeing in that population. So there's some more um, energy being directed towards pediatrics, but um, what we're seeing is that we're still, I'm, I've still not seen enough studies directed back to um, the nursing home population or the post-acute, um, the post-acute long-term care continuum for those individuals 65 and above. You know, I want to hit upon, and I, um, we're running into time, I want to hit upon um, questions about treatment. And then I think, Gary, I could hit upon your long COVID um, um, question as well with um, vaccinations. So just um, just a level set, this was shared uh, a few, um, um, uh, maybe a week ago, a, a summary of um, preventative ages and therapeutics that we're seeing for COVID-19, um, where we can have people being treated um, beforehand with, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I have somebody, is someone making a comment? Okay, so we, we've seen where we have the Evyshield and um, some other um, um, now oral antivirals that are out there for COVID. Currently, we do not have any recommendation to utilize those for um, the um, therapy for um, post-COVID. We do have a clinical trial that is um, ongoing um, by the NIH. Um, it was supposed to be completed on April 1st. Uh, um, and so I'm hoping that we'll see some, a write-up about this um, come, come uh, over the summer or early fall. So that is, that is interesting because they are looking at utilizing monoclonal antibodies to treat post-acute um, um, COVID syndrome. What we do know is that the vaccines, uh, when we, we've had some people who were vaccinated, we, we saw this study come out in January where we looked at individuals who um, were um, vaccinated uh, with um, two shots, uh, what happened when they got COVID. And we did see a decreased incidence of the of development of long COVID symptoms in that vaccinated population. Um, this was, um, again, um, looked at as well, where we saw um, out of the British Medical Journal, we saw um, a reduced incidence of long COVID symptoms related to the administration of COVID vaccines. Um, uh, and looking at that 12-week period after, we did see that reduced incidence in that, that um, population of individuals who were vaccinated versus who were not. There's also been a lot of questions around, um, well, what do I treat um, with as far as vitamins? And so I want to just, you know, level set about vitamins. Um, I'm, I've always been in the vitamin D um, camp because um, my um, attendings beat it over my head in, in fellowship. But, um, you know, in looking at what we, what we are seeing, you know, I know a lot of our patients are being discharged home on zinc and ascorbic acid, as well as vitamin D. Um, this study um, looked at individuals with an uh, a active infection of COVID and it was stopped um, um, early because um, they weren't seeing any, any significant uh, differences between the four groups. So it was stopped, you know, it, um, there, there I think will always be people who just um, believe in giving all the, the vitamins and supplements um, that we can, but there hasn't been any evidence to show that they have any long-term benefit. So I don't have any way to even 
support um, any supportive evidence saying that even in that post-COVID period, we maybe should we be supplementing? There, there's just not that that evidence. The same with um, vitamin D. Um, no significant association between the clinical outcomes of COVID-19 um, and vitamin D levels. But, uh, you know, I, I think they're still studying this. And right now we just can't clinically um, recommend um, that. Uh, but when we're looking at um, the management of um, how do we approach this, the, the main uh, points has been around you need a multidisciplinary team approach. You need to individualize care plans and ongoing support, um, which is, you know, nice to hear. What, it, what this has translated it to is a lot of um, COVID recovery centers, again, for the, that active population. Um, and it is, it is just interesting that we, we still haven't seen the, the, this um, being broadened to um, other populations. So we, we really do need to think about, okay, what does this look like for our long-term care residents, our post-acute residents. And um, a place where I turned to was um, into the physiatry literature. And um, this was an interesting study about looking at how should we be approaching acute um, 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 COVID um, diagnoses and anticipating for individuals who may develop long-term sequelae of COVID. And in their recommendations, um, they proposed uh, really thinking about um, the, the 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 whole uh, journey that that person is going to have, and really designing rehabilitation interventions along that whole pathway. So from the the way we pre prevent, you know, and, and doing all of the safeties, but what happens when they're in that acute phase? How do what do we need to do? And um, as they're um, going into the post-acute rehabilitation um, phase and now thinking about what long-term um, efforts do we need to have in place so that we can continue to um, rehab these individuals. Um, there's also been um, another study that was published in, in um, the Journal of the Eternal International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, where they're really thinking about how do we define those post-COVID symptoms and thinking about that trajectory of, um, of that uh, a person may take that journey. And in looking at that, you know, that first phase um, would really be, or the initial um, onset is in the hospitalization, but then there's a transition phase where you may be, um, you may have symptoms that are um, potentially associated with COVID that are persisting. Uh, you have that acute um, post-COVID symptoms. So in thinking about um, if you were affected and you had a headache during your your um, your acute infection, maybe you're still having infection, um, still having headaches. Uh, maybe they persist after the 12th week and into that 24th week. So really trying to figure out if we have this into phases, then how do we target um, treatments along those different phases? And then there was another study where we um, we saw um, where they were thinking about how do we just do a different clinical approach and create a care pathway for individuals who may be experiencing um, um, these um, long haulers, long COVID, post-acute sequelae of COVID um, symptoms. And this was interesting because of the way they looked and they really um, thought about starting all of this intervention even earlier. So at that four week um, mark after um, diagnosis or hospital, um, discharge, they need to have additional screenings um, to, to identify if they have persistence of any symptoms. And if they do have persistence of symptoms, um, it then brings you to a different area of the algorithm where you are going to start implementing certain um, studies and tests to see where that person is at, sort of getting a different um, baseline for that individual um, earlier than um, what we've been seeing and earlier than what the World Health uh, Organization has diagnosed as that, um, that um, defined as that time period for uh, um, saying that someone has post-COVID um, sequelae. Uh, the, the 
and I know I have a question in the chat. I'm trying to see at the same time as present, but um, I think that if we are we are looking at this, we have to really figure out where where would our members, our patients, fall into this algorithm, and how does this need to change for our long term care and um, our post acute long term care um, um, patients. Um, the question that was posed to me, if a patient is diagnosed with long COVID, do they still continue with COVID vax regimen schedule? So that is a good question. Um, if, you know, if they've not been um, vaccinated, uh, there is evidence that they should go ahead and be vaccinated. And um, in those two studies I mentioned earlier, they're, they're actually looking at what happens after you've um, been vaccinated if you were having the long COVID um, symptoms. The only, there, I haven't seen any um, studies really talking about that period that have come out with more than like 20 people involved in it. So I don't have uh, um, any clear guidance, uh, just um, different case um, reports. I know that uh, personally for us, when our daughter who had um, COVID toes, um, She's now 19, but when she had COVID, um, she did develop COVID toes, and that's sort of how um, my relationship with Pamela started. Um, but um, when we, when she was vaccinated, that did get better. But that is just one case, and so we do need to to um, um, look at more information. Um, there was a case where a gentleman who had. Uh, um, nausea and vomiting following his COVID diagnosis. When he um, was vaccinated, he became, he had even more um, nausea, vomiting, and um, ended up developing an ulcer following his vaccination. So, you know, we need more evidence. We need more information um, to, to figure out what that is. I, I would err on the side of protection and um, having that person vaccinated. Uh, in the minutes remaining, and I don't know if there are other questions that I might have missed, but in the minutes remaining, I do want to talk about coding again, because um, what what we're looking at and what we're um, seeing is how we are um, capturing and documenting this information. And the one thing I want to make sure everybody is aware, hopefully, um, at this point, that is that there is a post-COVID-19 condition, ICD-10 code. You um, um, 09.9, which was added um, by the World Health Organization early in 2021. It was accepted by um, us in um, March of 2021 and implemented um, in October on October 1st of 2021. So you could be utilizing this um, code if you suspect that somebody may have post-acute sequelae of COVID or any other of the terms that you feel more comfortable using, they all roll up into this one, um, this one code. Interestingly enough, any post-COVID complication also would roll up into this one code as well. And um, the thing when you think about the symptoms, um, if you are seeing a symptom, you code that symptom first. So if I saw someone with who had persistent fatigue, I would code fatigue, and then I would code um, the post-COVID condition um, um, secondarily. So it is very important to do that. I know some EMRs, when talking to people, they won't even let you put um, U09.9 as a primary code. It has to be in association with something else, which is um, probably the safer way to get it um, actually coded and captured um, and not kicked back to you. Uh, that example then being so you have fatigue two months after COVID infection, you're coding the um, ICD-10 code for fatigue, then you will code um, the um, post-COVID condition code. And I think it's very important for us to, if you suspect it, to start to start coding it, um, we need to start capturing information um, both on our end where we're um, doing what we're doing now and exchanging information and, and talking through cases, but also on um, 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 CMS and any other payers in where we're looking at this because we really do need to think about how we approach this for our population. And um, I say all of that, you know, giving, um, I think I, in the presentation I gave more um, examples, but I say all of that because I really do feel like we need to answer this call to action. Um, there was a study 
that was given, uh, that not as so much a study, but a commentary in, um, um, I believe it was um, March Journal of American Geriatric Society, where there was a, uh, a, a, you know, I thought it was really interesting and fascinating because this is how I was feeling where we felt like the nursing home population is once again being forgotten about um, in thinking about how we are targeting post-acute sequelae of COVID. Uh, there are those as I said, stated before, COVID recovery centers that are really being developed for more active people. So people who are currently employed, people who are not of that Medicare age population, um, leaving off both ends of, of the age pool. So both the older and the younger. And now we're seeing them um, come back and talk about pediatrics, but still we haven't seen the up of the uptick of us having these conversations in our own literature um, and really identifying and, and developing guidance for our own population. So what I think we should be doing now is really understanding what is our residence baseline, having that truly documented, documenting that every time you're seeing um, the person as part of whatever note you're doing, but having a high suspicion for post-COVID conditions. Because um, these findings, especially if they're so dramatic and there's a dramatic change in um, condition, you know, I know the trigger response is, oh, it has to be a UTI, something else is going on, let me start empiric antibiotics. For the most of the people, we've always sort of preached against doing that, but um, we're seeing it now where we're utilizing more antibiotics, we are um, utilizing more psychotropics, and we really need to think about what are what is it we, we're seeing so that we can develop um, better approaches towards it, and then document, document, document that um, correctly, and please capture the coding appropriately. And um, my ask is that you know, even I, I would love to see even more cases. I would love to um, to have sessions where we're sitting on and reviewing cases and um, making a plan to write this up so that we have not only a voice, but um, really understand the interest in that no one else is gonna speak towards our own interests and our own specialty. So we need to own that space and um, write about what we're seeing. And with that, I am going to open it up for questions. Dr. Kaplan. Yeah, Diane, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Um, let's see I can get on. So uh, in today's uh, AMDA weekly Pulse report, uh, at the bottom where they have the news and news analysis, I don't know if anybody had seen this, but um, it was interesting. Uh, they had an article uh, with a, a couple, just, these are anecdotal cases, just a few, uh, two to three positive responses to Paxlovid for uh, long COVID symptoms. Um, both cases were in their 40s. And um, both basically uh, had significant symptoms of long COVID and just for whatever reason ended up taking the therapy and noted some dramatic improvement. Of course, this hasn't been looked at across the board, et cetera. There is the ongoing question of whether antiviral treatment not only will prevent severe COVID, but will it actually prevent uh, onset of long COVID? Uh, so that's a question that lingers out there as well. So just some food for thought. Um, thank you for a great presentation, great overview, thanks. Thank you, I think that that is where we're, uh, a lot of good um, um, findings are gonna be because I'm really hopeful um, about some of the, 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 tr the one trial that the NIH is doing with um, monoclonal antibodies, but it would be interesting to see the, if there is, um, if we get really strong data around um, the, the oral antivirals. I'm really hopeful about that. And, you know, I think, um, um, you know, I think the question about Paxlovid um, rebound and acute COVID treatment, um, you know, I, I know we've heard about a couple of those cases. I do not have enough insight or information to share it. I don't know if we have any pharmacists on the call, um, but um, Glenn, we could definitely take that question away to see if we can, um, answer it for you. Um, from Catherine, have you seen any the effects of um, PASC on your staff who've been affected? I have. I don't know if anyone else wants to 
can, can speak to this, but um, I've talked to um, um, individuals uh, in the HR departments and um, spoken to um, friends at facilities where we've seen um, more individuals not be able to do, um, not be able to, to complete the task because of uh, of um, some issue that they're having that probably falls under post-acute sequelae of COVID. I don't know if we know the full impact of that, but um, I will say that, you know, if you would, if you put post-acute sequelae of COVID into the CDC's um, website, what you're going to get is all the talking, the, um, the pointers about how to file for disability. This is a big deal in the active population. We are seeing a lot of people um, and we are anticipating seeing more people file for um, disability because of um, post-acute sequelae of COVID. So I, I do think it's probably impacting our um, our workforce. Um, Carrie, you have a question? Well, I, I had, you were talking about what, uh, what do we do now with long COVID and how do we in the nursing centers treat that? Or what do we do with it? And uh, what I would have to say, and as difficult as it is, because staffing is a major issue all by itself, but as a long-term care, uh, long-term COVID patient, I can tell you a short-term inpatient in-house rehab is not going to do it because the, the, the sequela that comes up is so long. And the fatigue, the shortness of breath, the uh, uh, the muscle weakness, the panic attacks, everything that goes along with it doesn't happen quickly. And so we need to empower what we used to call restorative nursing and have programs that after a, a rehab, uh, acute post-hospital rehab, what the a multidisciplinary thing with therapy activities and nursing to because it takes a long time to get your breath uh back and to overcome the panic fears and you know i can just tell you that work when i work out now nine months on sunday from my hospitalization it's only been six weeks since I've been without oxygen working out. Wow. So we have to change how we do things in rehab. Yes. I, I Sorry for the echo. I 100% agree with you, um, Carrie. I think it's going to take us, and that's one of the reasons why we need to start documenting, writing this up, and, and really getting a full appreciation of how this is impacting um, our um care setting, I think it's going to take us doing doing these things because we, if we're going to change how we're working, we also need to, to understand the fact that we're getting paid um, by um, the states and um, the federal government, and we need to push back on um, certain things because it may take a longer course of rehabilitation for an individual. It may, um, you know, those 21 days may not be enough, uh, you oh, know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the most important thing is that I can share is that, you know, as much as the words tiny steps, uh, slow but steady and patience, uh, not progress, those were not words in my vocabulary ever. But, you know, what I can say is that this really is something if we're going to prevent the people eventually from going to hospice, maybe too early or being too impatient that uh, rehab, uh, they, they can't quite make it in rehab. It, it just takes a long time, but it works. Well, thank you. And thank you everyone for joining us. And if you have any questions, um, let us know. Um, I think I've saved the chat so we can address any questions that we didn't address on the call and the presentation as well as um, the articles highlighted will be um, posted. So thank you everyone. References for this podcast and links to the previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.
If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.